Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday night on September 6th, 2018, as the Chicago White Sox are off tonight before they start a three-game series against the Anaheim Angels this weekend. We'll preview that series and discuss what the Angels are going to do about Shohei Otani moving forward after news of him needing Tommy John surgery to repair his UCL in his pitching arm. This is a familiar topic. We've talked about it quite a bit regarding Mike Adelfo, but Otani's a very good pitcher. How will his future be impacted. We'll also chat about Dylan Cease, who is MLB Pipeline's minor league pitcher of the year, which is very exciting and well-deserved for Cease, who had an outstanding 2018 season. However, not everyone at the prospect game would agree with MLB Pipeline's pick as Fangraphs uses Cease as an example of a pitcher we may overhype. What is Cease's stock, and is there a reason to be concerned about Cease moving forward? But first, we recap the three-game series against the Detroit Tigers, where a couple of the young guns took their lumps, and we saw more action from the new faces out of the bullpen. Joining me is the co-host of the podcast and managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Last night confirmed what we knew in April, that the White Sox will not be making the postseason this year. That's 10 straight seasons of not making the playoffs if if your patience was a fuel tank gauge, where is it? It's mainly, uh, I guess, 
I would say maybe a quarter full. You know, enough that you're not worrying, you're not checking for mileage, but just like Mm -hmm. next year, I think, will be the one where if there isn't positive development, then I think that's when it's you you start running an empty. Yeah, I agree with you on the uh, there's a quarter tank of gas left. Like after the 2019 season, I'm not expecting the White Sox to be a postseason contender, but it'd be like one eighth. Like, yeah, I could drive around the city and maybe go get some food. But while getting food, I probably should get some gas. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind of where I'd be. Be like, all right, 11 straight seasons, not making the playoffs, uh, maybe seven straight losing seasons. OK, it's time to start seeing some winning baseball in 2020. But with the White Sox and Tigers, again, the White Sox losing two out of three against Detroit. The last two games were blowouts in that series. The White Sox are 56 and 84. Back in fourth place in the American League Central, one game behind Detroit. They're also currently fourth of the draft slot for the 2019 Major League Baseball draft. So for those of you that want the White Sox to have the best draft pick or draft slot possible to get the most draft money and an opportunity to maybe get one of the best players available in the upcoming draft, uh, you're in luck so far. They're just one game behind San Diego. However, it's a very tight race between teams that are going to be drafting third all the way to seventh. And Jim, in two of those three losses, it really fell on some struggles with the starting pitching. In particular, we'll start with Lucas Giolito. He had a great first inning, two strikeouts on 10 pitches. It looked like that he was going to continue his terrific run that he's been on as of late. But he couldn't get out of the second inning in his start where he threw 40 pitches alone in that inning. And again, he, you know, he's been doing so well. So what caused the collapse this time? Well, you know, you know, watching the game and, and watching the inning unfold, it seemed like Victor Martinez's first at bat, just a, you know, a classic Victor battle of 11 pitches and, you know, him taking forever in between pitches uh, to the point where the at bat was like, you know, five minutes long. Yeah, it, it was a bad way to start an inning, and then he just never found the ground. He never, uh, you know, Ryan Cordell had a bad route on a fly ball that, you know, might have been a sacrifice fly, but, you know, and, and would have been, you know, a nice catch if he made it, but, you know, turned to a double and just couldn't quite, I think he needed to get out of the inning. And, you know, I guess it's kind of self-explanatory, but he needed to get out of that inning to get out of the game. But I think if he would have been able to close the book on that inning, he might have been able to reset, come back in the third inning and, and have a better run in it. But he just cannot, the pitchers just couldn't stop piling up a lot of two-strike foul balls. You know, not terrible pitches, but just couldn't find the put-away pitch. And to the Tigers' credit, they just, you know, wore him out, I think. And in the September of a, a long and trying season for him, just might have been a start where, um, you know, those that kind of pitch count early just wasn't worth pursuing it and and trying to uh, salvage the game you know with an extended bullpen just get out of it try again next time yeah the Detroit Tigers were quite aggressive against Lucas Giolito definitely going after first pitch fastball and maybe that's an opportunity where Kevin Smith also learns from this start where if you catch on that quickly that the Tigers are being hyper aggressive early in the count going for any fastball that's near the strike zone to mix it up a little bit, maybe starting at a bat with a curveball or a changeup. That may have helped. But again, as you mentioned, Jim, when you start the inning on 11 pitch at bat, you throw more pitches to Victor Martinez and it ends up as a single than you did getting two strikeouts in the first inning. Uh, I mean, we've seen it before and thankfully, uh, well, hopefully I should say Victor Martinez decides to retire after this year. 
so we don't have to see him torment the White Sox anymore. Michael Kopech, again, it was Kopech Day on Wednesday, and of course it rained twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kopech allowed four home runs in his start, Jim, and I'm not concerned about the result where he only lasted three and one-third innings because this is what we wanted to see from Kopech. We want to see him get challenged so he can learn and be a better starting pitcher moving forward when the game's count or all games count but they have more meaning for a White Sox team to hopefully be a future postseason contender what does concern me a bit is that he was sitting around 93 to 94 miles per hour with his fastball do you think it was attended for Kopech to sit at those levels instead of the normal levels I should say where we typically see him sitting between 96 and 98 no, just because he couldn't get the top velocity. I think, you know, maybe if he were able to ramp it up and get 98, 99, even 100 on his fastball, then you can say, you know, that's a strategic choice, maybe not a great one, but, um, you know, maybe he's trying to throw strikes in the majors and wait till they punish him and they punished him. But not getting the, you know, even 97, I think he topped out 96.3. Uh, I think Brooks had it, and I think StatCast at 96.1. Yeah, they, they measure him slightly differently when it comes to release point, but... Um, yeah, it was just, he was missing the top fastball. And I think that I was a little bit, um, you know, watching the broadcast, I was listening to Jason Benetti and Steve Stone talk about how he's, you know, kind of throttling down and trying to throw strikes and uh, work on command. And, and I was kind of skeptical just because when it came to fast or when it came to strikeout counts, uh, fastballs, you know, high fastballs wasn't finding 98, wasn't finding 99. It was just all 95, a couple 96s, but really just, uh, Nothing where, you know, major league hitters know 96, even with movement, they've seen it and, and, you know, maybe they can follow it off and fight it off and wait for something lower in the zone. And he did make mistakes lower in the zone and they did hit line drives. And then the you know, homers piled up in the fourth and he was out. And, um, you know, he downplayed, you know, the, the fatigue angle and just said that he didn't get, he wasn't quite ready for it. And, you know, that, that sounds a little bit damning, you know, just, you know, why aren't you prepared? But I think it's, you know, when it comes to major league pitching and, uh, you know, September and the first six month, first sixth month of a season seems like, you know, it could be just a learning a new routine, learning a new, um, I guess, you know, angled more towards endurance and uh, maybe just got caught off guard by the workload. You know, so I could see it, you know, while he's not saying fatigue, I could see it being totally fatigue and him not wanting to admit it and needing to adjust. And I'm just, you know, I would be concerned that if he's throwing 96, you know, you just hope it is an injury that he's trying to push through and that his mechanics get compromised because he's trying to uh, dig a little deeper than his normal mechanics allow. And, you know, that's, that's, I think it would be my concern. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, like everybody else, I'm intrigued to see the next start and just see where he is. And, um, you know, if he's throwing 96 at the end of a season, it's not the worst because at least he has to learn how to get guys out with that less than his best, but it would mm-hmm. really just be throwing for, uh, multiple starts at a time with a lesser fastball. Just hope it isn't, you know, an injury or, you know, elbow or shoulder, or whatever. Yeah. Oh, that would be devastating. Wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, uh, Urias in, uh, uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. Just, I would, that would break my heart. <laughs> It would just be, you know what, I'm done with 2019 already, and we're not even there yet. (laughs) Uh, The next probable start for Michael Kopech is September 11th, Tuesday at Kansas City against the Royals. So not a tough opponent offensively, but the Tigers are the weakest hitting team in all of Major League Baseball. In terms of home runs, they hit four home runs off Michael Kopech. So it's a good lesson to learn, but... 
going to be paying attention to the velocity as far as the radar gun in its next start against Kansas City. Now, because of the troubles with Giolito and Kopech, I guess the silver lining, Jim, is that we got to see more of the new guys out of the bullpen. Who's impressed you so far out of the call-ups? Well, you know, it, the fastballs are impressive. I think with Burr and Frere and, and Ruiz, you know, the fastballs are there. You know, 95, 96, 97 as advertised. I think, um, uh, you know, Frere had a really good first outing. Second outing, was, he got roughed up. And, and I think Burr's had a, uh, he given up a couple homers. And Ruiz, you know, he battled, uh, gave up an inherited run, but none of his own. I think right now it's the, and, and James Fegan wrote about this with The Athletic, and we've known about it for a couple of years now, that the Major League Baseballs are different from the Minor League Balls. And the sliders aren't quite there yet. I think like the power breaking balls um, are still in development. So I think when it comes to setting guys up, they're doing okay, especially Burr. You know, he's throwing strikes, but the the good sliders aren't quite there yet. The last homer Burr gave up was on a just a hanger. I think he called it a cutter. You know, whatever you know, you're calling it, the power breaking ball isn't quite yet, yet there for any of these guys. So I think Ian Hamilton has probably been the best in terms of just the, the fastball playing up and throwing some really good sliders that, you know, maybe, you know, he's still battling it too, but he's been able to snap up a, a couple really good ones for strikeouts um, or, you know, swings and misses, compromise swings, whereas the other ones still working on it. Yeah. Ian Hamilton has been very impressive. He hasn't allowed a base runner. I, I, It's very small sample size. It's just two and one third innings pitched. But he does have two strikeouts. He hasn't allowed a hit yet. He hasn't allowed a walk. And he just seems to be very composed on the mound. Like what I saw from him in Birmingham in April has just carried over to Charlotte. And it's carried over so far to Chicago. Be interesting to see how he performs. I mean, maybe we'll get a chance to see him this weekend, let's say, against a Mike Trout and see if he could stay composed against the best player in Major League Baseball. But of course, again, also on the road, I wouldn't mind that the White Sox have a one-run game, Jim, that Rick Renteria, I know he's been going to Juan Minaya and Jace Fry, but I'd like to see Ian Hamilton get a shot, being able mm-hmm. to hold a slim lead just because he was closing in Birmingham and he was closing in Charlotte and he had quite a bit of success at those two levels. Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and I think, uh, he would probably be low, you know, say if they play a few close games in a row, I think he'd be loath to name any one young guy, the closer right now. So he might go to Hamilton one game and go away. And, but I wouldn't mind seeing, you know, Berg get a shot, uh, you know, if there are tough lefties in the eighth and ninth innings, see Frere get a shot, just see what they have. But yeah, I think Hamilton right now is showing why the numbers were so good all year long, whereas Burr, you know, he ran hot and cold a bit. And I'm, if Hamilton closes, that's great. That'd be exciting. But like if it's a one run game, the seventh or eighth inning, see if he can handle that situation before yeah, handing it yeah. off to Jace Fry or Juan Minaya to, to lock it down and close out the game. I just think you learn a little bit more from that situation than Hector Santiago. I know with the guys that are in the clubhouse now that they want to win every single game. So having that veteran go out and and get the saves, you know, helps build morale and to keep this good baseball that the White Sox have been playing now for more than 40 games going as they have a a winning record uh, in their last 40 games. Uh, But this is again, this is also a time to learn what you've got and who could help you in 2019. And uh, I like to see Ian Hamilton be used in a in a high leverage situation. The upcoming games, Ruiz, Burr, Freyer. It's I, I like the way that Renteria is using them right now in the low leverage situations. I, I just 
as a fan and as somebody that's got a chance to meet Hamilton and interview him and watch him in Birmingham in April and watch a lot of his starts in Charlotte on the streams, I have he's the one I have the most confidence in, Jim, that can maybe handle a high leverage situation right now. Yeah, and I think when it comes to Hamilton and you, you mentioned the morale thing or you know not wanting to turn uh, the ninth innings into just kind of a, a – random audition yeah i think hamilton's got the stuff where he, the hitters on his own team know how good he is and and know he, that you know whether he's a closer now or whether he has to you know i guess take some lumps or or, or build some calluses um that uh you know he will be a future closer has future closer stuff so i don't think they would take it as a grave insult if he came in the ninth inning you know and botched one because the stuff is there and uh yeah before we uh you know uh, you know, as we're wrapping up the Detroit series, I want to talk about, and then and this wasn't on your outline, but the broadcast booth for Detroit. Oh, I gosh. want to talk about this story. <laughs> I want to make sure the uh, if anybody's listening to this hasn't seen it, to look up what went on in the Detroit broadcast booth during the series on Tuesday. Okay. Uh, apparently, Mario and Pemba, Rod Allen, they're the longtime combo, and yeah. you know I've listened to them, and yeah, you know, I've had their broadcast because some, you know when I was in extra innings at the home feed, you know I always thought they were kind of unremarkable. You know, and Pemba's a straightforward play-by-play guy. Allen's a, you know he you know has his own cliches and such, mm-hmm. and you know they're not not you know uh, I guess they're they're neither uh, you know, they don't make an impression on you either way. They're not great. They're not good. You know they're not. You know, good. They're not bad. They're not awful. They're just kind of middle of the road. So it kind of surprised me to find out that uh, I guess during Tuesday's game or after Tuesday's game, there was a fight between them. And right now, what? the report's been the report's been evolving. And I guess right now the pressure is on Rod Allen, the the uh, analyst. Apparently, you know, one one local TV outlet said that he choked Mpemba from behind. It was an argument about a chair, and. <laughs> And Allen's side, Allen's agent is denying it. Uh, right now, they're saying that there was no fight. Nobody followed anybody. There was no contact from behind. This is agent. Uh, there was no fight. Nobody followed anybody. If there was no contact from behind in a, quote, chokehold, unquote, is a shamefully untrue way to describe anything which occurred in that very brief altercation. That's where we're at right now with the story. But apparently they had to be separated. Uh, they got sent home. They had a different crew come in, a different, both a, a play-by-play guy wow. and Kirk Gibson, who's like the rotating analyst. They flew in to do the call on Wednesday. And I'm fascinated by the story because I don't know how Hawk Harrelson didn't have a story like this. <laughs> over his. I guess like he, he mentioned in his book that one time he and Don Drysdale nearly got in a fight in a car. But there's been nothing like this in the booth, and I don't know how Hawk didn't get to this first. Wow. That is... That's crazy. The broadcaster's fighting. A chokehold over a chair? I mean, there's got to be... There's got to be some beef then. There's, like, some... A lot of beef between those two to get to that moment. Yeah, it... Yeah, there have been some, you know, the story saying that their relationship had been kind of icy, you know, over the last couple of years. And the the NBC affiliate that, you know, talked about the choke story, they, <laughs> this is the other thing that reminded me of Hawk, was the uh, uh, passage from the story. Viewers might not have noticed anything. And you, oh, okay, so it was during the game. During the Viewers game. might not have noticed anything unusual during the game, but listening back to the broadcast, there are several long silences later in the game, including a 43-second stretch without talking in the bottom of the sixth inning. And 43 seconds without talking sounds a lot like a bad White Sox game. <laughs> wow. That's that's crazy. I did not know about that. No, I, okay, I didn't so, get the full details. Okay, so it sounds like it was after Tuesday's game, but there might have been an argument during the game. 
like between innings. And they just, so the altercation was after it. So they just put the cough mic on or the press the cough button and just scream at each other. Yeah. Or maybe then, between, you know, between innings or something like that. And then just. <laughs> That's crazy, man. That yeah. is crazy. I mean, you heard what happened in Seattle, right? Where before the game started and, and for those that are listening that don't know the procedure, uh, when you go cover a game, the media has an opportunity to interview players in the clubhouse in a certain time frame before a game starts. And when the media pool was trying to get in earlier this week to in the Seattle clubhouse, there's a big fight. And they were like, get out of the clubhouse. And the door slammed and there, there was a, a fight going on with the Seattle Mariners, which I understand frustrations probably boiling over as that they were in playoff contention and now they're fading in the playoff race, I think Tampa Bay's catching up. But it's one thing, Jim, to hear about players scuffling, right, and fighting. You've been working together for so long, type A personalities, super competitive, but broadcasters <laughs> fighting? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, this is this is a great way to, to fill an off day just following the story, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens. It's a shame that uh, the White Sox and Tigers are done for the year because I wouldn't mind one more series to follow up you know, watch a game with whatever, whatever and whoever is there uh, just to see exactly the aftermath of that. Because it sounds, I'm guessing, you know, based on following the, the conversations elsewhere and reading comments and blog posts and tweets and everything, it sounds like, you know, they might, this might be the end of their run. Um, but you think, yeah, <laughs> they just fought. Yeah. Oh, but, you know, man. I'll, you know, then again, you know, they could say that, you know, it's what needed to happen. I know that, you know, Harrelson and Stone, they never came to blows as far as anybody knows. They just never talked to each other. Like even between innings, just they made no small talk, never, never shared meals or anything like that. And, and I think they kept their distance both uh, literally and figuratively. And, uh, but yeah, just, you know, maybe uh, Hawk and Stone might've, yeah, they, their their relationship might have improved. They just had some kind of honest accounting, you know, maybe not with choking from behind or however <laughs> it happened, but yeah, just, oh man, it's great. But yeah, just seeing it from them, you're just kind of a, a bland, nondescript, uh, you know, broadcast team makes me wonder, you know, these these kind of more outlandish ones, you know, with Hawk in the booth and we, we you know, we haven't seen with Hawk, but, uh, you know, other ones that with big personalities, you know, the Mets are another example, Um you know, the, the, the A's with Dallas Braden, you know, Rex Hudler, you know, just like all these guys that have more, you know, outgoing personalities and more, yeah, not, maybe not abrasive, but just, you know, ones that could wear on you hasn't happened yet. Just Detroit's I, I, that completely surprised me and I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. I'm going to have to get caught up and stay on top of that one and, and see what happens moving forward. Maybe visit our friends uh, over at Bless You Boys to see on what their reactions are uh, with what's going on. Wow, that is uh, that is interesting. That's one way to make the Tigers interesting for the remaining 2018 season. Wow. I think it'd be fat more. I think it would be better if the White Sox, if it were Benetti and Stone. Oh come! On. I mean, I don't know. About, I don't think they could ever. But I mean, that would. Be, yeah, but that would be just that would be that would be incredible just to see like. There, yeah, on mic, they're as chummy as can be. Off mic, <laughs> bitter resentment. Oh. And this isn't the first fight they had. I know. Wow. Yeah. Stone tried to run Bonetti down in his car. You know, just like, <laughs> I'd be down for yeah, that. That'd be great soap opera <laughs> television. Oh, man. Okay. So, from the Detroit Tigers broadcast fiasco uh, to some good news. For White Sox prospects, Dylan Cease, MOB Pipeline, 
Of course, one of our best friends of the podcast, Jim Callis, is part of that team. He runs that site. Uh, announced today that Dylan Cease is their minor league pitcher of the year. Thanks to his 12-2 win-loss record, a 2.40 ERA with a 1.06 whip, over 124 innings in Winston-Salem and Birmingham in 2018, C struck out batters at a 32.5% rate, which was fourth best in the minor leagues, and he had the sixth best batting average against at 189. Jim, we both agree that... Cease has had a terrific season, and he answered a lot of lingering questions about his ability to hold up as a starter. Yesterday, Fangraph's Kylie McDaniel wrote a very interesting piece about how these prospect writers are going to be ranking pitchers in the near future. And one of the examples that McDaniel wanted to to address was Dylan Cease as his one of the examples. And this is what McDaniel wrote about Cease on Fangraph's. Cease's delivery is fine, but very few big league starters have this kind of size, health history, and delivery tempo. He's been showing us what he's good at for a while, and that's useful in the current game more than ever. It probably probably just won't be as a 200-inning starting pitcher. Cease actually fits well in the Tampa Bay Rays mold of the second pitcher after the opener. And to be fair, he's made strides this year in terms of durability and figuring out how to succeed with the skill set. Sometimes these types of prospects discover feel later in their careers, but there are enough data points here to point to a hybrid role as a best fit. Jim, I respect McDaniel's prospect analysis because he's been a scout for several teams. And of course, Jim Callis, again, one of our best friends of the podcast, he's been doing this for longer than some of you have been alive, okay, uh, that are listening to this right now. 25 plus years Jim Callis has been writing about prospects. So we have two differences of opinion here about Dylan Cease. What is Cease's future stock in your opinion, Jim? Well, it's on the way up. I mean, I, I get his point, especially with Cease's health history. You know, um, you're missing time with shoulder fatigue last year, having Tommy John surgery. You know, he's had a couple uh, things now keeping him from... Um, you know, full workload. But I think this year um, he had the year he needed to have where it's, uh, you know, just endurance, it's in-game endurance, it's, uh, you know, effectiveness, um, you know, multiple times through the order. You know, he, he was limited to five innings mostly last year and and struggled. Uh, the few opportunities he got to go to six, you know, he, he pitched in the sixth inning with regularity. Um, you know, got promoted to double A, which I think he needed to do in order to maintain his top prospect status. And he, uh, you know, fared well, you know, fared even better there with Birmingham, just, uh, you know, lights out stuff in Birmingham. So I think it's on the way up. I think the, you know, the history of his health and, you know, being a smaller pitcher and not having, I guess, as much natural power and reach and, and leverage and needing to maximize, you know, basically everything he's got from his frame. I can see that being a real point of concern, but I think for the time being, um, you know, and me not being a, Mechanics guy, delivery guy, you know, not having the scouting background that a guy like, you know, Kylie has. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I guess I say I trust his input and it's something I'll file away when evaluating him. But right now I think I'm, I would say I'm more bullish than him. Let's say that Cease is a starting pitcher for the White Sox in the future, but he's only a starting pitcher that can give you 175 innings a season. Is that good enough? Yeah, I think with the way it's going, I guess it depends on the shape of that 175 innings and whether it's because he's missing a month of the season or whether it's just because they decide that, uh, you know, he's good for five innings and then 
judge from there, you know, when it comes to the third time through and, um, you know, his how his stuff's holding up, you know, his, how his fastball velocity is holding up, um, the life on his stuff, um, you know, how he's throwing his curveball. You know, if they decide that he's kind of a, you know, wait, you know, say if it's a close game in the third inning, if they have relievers who are good for, you know, pitching three times a week, you know, multiple innings uh, and can, you know, be more of a bridge, then, you know, maybe they limited him to five to six innings to start at the major league level. And that's how you get to 175. And, you know, that's part of a greater strategic call. So I think when it comes to innings, you know, that could be the one of the ramifications of this starter, you know, this opener, the second guy movement is that we kind of define innings loads and just the shape of a value of a starting pitcher. So I think that's kind of yet to be determined, but uh, I do, you know, I can respect the point about him being a classic second time or you know, a classic second pitcher. And I, I think they kind of serve the same roles. I think the opener is more about, um, you know, I guess how the team sets their lineup and how they navigate through the, you know, three of the team's four best hitters. Um, you know, when it comes to this, you know, I guess analytic breakdown and, and optimized lineups versus optimized pitching staff. So, uh, but yeah, I can see him being a five inning guy and, or I would say five to six inning guy and, and, and trying to minimize the risk of wearing them down. But, uh, that's not a bad fallback, especially for, you know, being the second piece in a trade for Jose Quintana. I think you know, if, if Eloy is who he is, uh, and, and who we think we, he will be, uh, having Cease as a good 175 inning pitcher is, you know, just value added. Well, switching gears, congratulations, Dylan Cease. I think it's a well-deserved honor and it'll be interesting to see on where he goes from here into 2019. But coming up next, we're going to be previewing the upcoming series against the Anaheim Angels as they come to the south side of Chicago. But before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Football is back. It starts this weekend. And SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every game all season long. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person. And SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. By searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value, SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. And it doesn't end with sports. SeatGeek has plenty of tickets to concerts, comedy, and theater too. I use SeatGeek all of the time to buy White Sox tickets. I use SeatGeek to get four tickets for this upcoming weekend series to see Mike Trout, to see Shohei Otani. only cost me $40 as SeatGeek has some terrific deals going on right now. And the best part is, is that our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event we have the tickets and this series preview against the Angels. The Angels are 68 and 72 in the 2018 season, a distant fourth place in the American League West, but they have an opportunity here to get back to 500. And the series starts Friday night at 7:10 p.m. Central Time. It is Felix Pena for the Angels against Carlos Rodon. Rodon trying to bounce back from his rough start against the Boston Red Sox. On Saturday, it is Matt Shoemaker against James Shields. And on Sunday, it is to be announced for the Angels, but it will be Ronaldo Lopez for the White Sox on Sunday before the White Sox go on their last lengthy road trip that will take them to Kansas City, Baltimore, and Cleveland. 
But Jim, the big story surrounding the Angels and a pretty popular topic right now around Major League Baseball is about Shohei Otani. He discovered that he will need Tommy John surgery to repair the UCL in his pitching arm. My stomach, uh, I just... It dropped. I felt bad because this is somebody that could be a superstar in this league. And I was worried that, well, there goes the 2019 season. We'll see Otani in 2020. But later that night, DHing for the Angels, he hit two home runs against the Texas Rangers. (laughs) So it reminded me of, oh, wait a minute, Josh. We've seen this this year. We saw it in Micah Adolfo where he DH'd and he had a successful offensive season for Winston-Salem. Now, Adolfo is not a starting pitcher who can throw 98 miles per hour and wasn't hyped and buzzed to be this dual threat where he could be an elite starting pitcher and also be a DH with some power like Otani. But what do the Angels go from here, Jim? Because while you want to look at the perspective of Otani and what's best for Otani moving forward, the Angels only have Mike Trout for two more years. And the clock is ticking on their ability to make the postseason and see what they can do with the game's best player. How do you think the Angels should move forward regarding Otani? I think, uh, you know, based on how much time he'll be missing and the uncertainty of um, you know, this, this idea that he can be a successful two-way player. I mean, it was, it was awesome, you know, watching him start and, and then, you know, uh, and, and throw some nasty stuff and it was still kind of coming together, his arsenal, you know, having that, you know, one day and then a couple of days later coming back as a DH and, and, you know, hitting a 420 foot homer and, and running the bases, uh, incredibly well, you know, as cool as that was. And, and, and as much as I want to see the angels pursue that, it just seems like, you know, having him having him chase this unicorn seems like just a yeah. You know, I, I guess the payoff is cool, but I don't know if the value is ultimately there. That makes sense. I think you know, it kind of seems like they should probably put the pitching dream uh, on hold, or maybe indefinitely. You know, and just go for the outfield play. You know, allow him to. You know, I guess put him on the micro Adolfo plan, and and you know, mention your point. I think Adolfo probably could hit like in the low nineties on the gun. He's got that kind of arm. You know, when it's fully mm-hmm. working, but. Uh, so make him a two-way player, but <laughs> it's me. Uh, I think with Otani, um, it seems like you know if, you're, if they want to maximize what they have with Trout, probably makes sense just to have him get the surgery. You know, say if you know, and Otani has to be willing for it. You don't you know, knock somebody out and put them under the knife, but it seems it ultimately makes sense value-wise to have you know have him go under the knife. You know try to use the full offseason as much as possible to get him healthy and ready by opening day and just have him as a outfielder or DH, maybe DH, get him on a throwing program during the season, you know, bring him back in the outfield and then, you know, evaluate after the year. And if they have to say goodbye to Albert Pujols and, you know, eat that money, so be it. Just because I think, you know, if they wait, you know, knock him out for a full season and you know, have him be on this half rehab plan and then, you know, try to build him up as a starter and then, never quite finish him as a hitter. And then, you know, who knows if you have complications from this arrangement again. Uh, I think they're just better off pursuing the hitting full time. And, you know, maybe later when, you know, his, if his arm is fully back to full strength and they have the opportunity to take the risk, you know, perhaps, especially if, say, if he's reaching for agency, try it again. But, uh, you know, as much as it sucks to say, and as much as, you know, I'm not invested in the Angels and would like to see it, uh, seems like they probably should ditch the pitching thing. I agree with you. I, I like the idea of having him be a right fielder or DH. If you still want him to pitch, you can make him a closer, have him come in the ninth inning and throw the ninth inning where if he could still hit 98, right, with this fastball and he still has that type of spin 
on his breaking pitches. He's going to be great in one inning of play, and maybe that works where it's not so much wear and tear on the arm. But again, you know, you got to warm up, right? You got to go to the bullpen. You got to warm up. So I I don't know about the logistics of doing that. Probably only work if he's a DH and you sacrifice the DH, right? Where all of a sudden he's DH and you see him run out to the bullpen in the seventh inning, right? Uh, Hopefully don't bat around and need him again. Uh, But it's, it's really interesting. And obviously, you know, we talk about two-way players and it was a great topic last year, especially with Brendan McKay being drafted in the top five uh, by Tampa, but it's, sounds like they may just move him to just being a starting pitcher moving forward i i don't know i just you know the human body can take only so much right jim that it's not natural to throw with this type of velocity and injuries and wear and tear come into play where i was hopeful because i think it's pretty cool to have players that can go both ways that could be a pitcher and also be an effective offensive player but I just don't know in today's game where you have to be so good to be successful in one thing, right? You have to hyper-focus to be good at one position, uh, to be an all-star or an MVP or a rookie of the year. Uh, that I agree that moving forward for Otani's sake, as far as having a sustained career in Major League Baseball, that it's best to have him in right field. And you know what? That's a pretty effective outfield if he gets healthy in 2019 with Justin Upton, Mike Trout, and Otani in right, or you could still have Cole Calhoun in right, and you could have Otani DH. It's just, it is kind of a bummer because it was so much fun to watch him pitch. And I, I wonder if if it's time to, to kill that dream, but it sounds like you and I are on the same page that it is probably best for Otani and for the Angels to to go in a different way on how to use him. Yeah, maybe if they were a different team and on a different timeline and could wait for 2020 to get a fully functional Tani back and not, you know... If he was on the White Sox. Yeah, yep. yeah, rebuilding team or a team taking a step back at the very least, like maybe like the Giants or something like that. Um, you know, maybe a different timeline could work, but I think for this team that needs, you know, all his talent and that needs to find out exactly what all his talent results in, you know, both numbers wise and, you know, how it fits in the team probably makes sense just to try to get as many games as possible from him in 2019. That will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much for listening to the live stream on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine. If you don't get a chance to listen to the live stream, no worries. We always upload every episode into the podcast feed in the next day which you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Machine. as Jim and I will be back to recap as far as the Angels series and preview the upcoming Kansas City Royals series in the next edition of the Sox Machine podcast on Monday. Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Have a terrific weekend, everyone, and thanks for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.